Hey everyone, we are recording our final episode uh, where we're talking about the left, uh, so to speak, and and liberal or progressive values. This one's focused on the church, whether it's liberal uh, theology or just kind of how those things have been applied in the church. And there's quite a few areas where we are out of step with churches who find themselves more more liberal theologically. And I don't think it's a coincidence that people who find themselves more liberal theologically also find themselves to be more liberal politically. And that has a lot to do with what our primary identity is in our country. Our point here is not to to single out liberalism or left ideas. We did a number of podcasts where we were focusing almost exclusively on conservative white evangelical church culture. We did a number of episodes, um, more than five, that that's really what we were critiquing specifically. The idea is that the answer to that is not to go left politically or to go left theologically. So much as the answer is to recognize that our polarized country and, and the way we think in terms of left and right is going to miss the way of Jesus on both sides. And we focus more on the right, but we wanted to do a few episodes on the left. Yeah, I think you said it. The point of this is to just talk about the way of Jesus as it relates to the culture. I was watching a, or I was listening to a podcast the other day, and psychologists were talking about how politics maps like a, like a religion now and how it's essentially become a religion. For Christians, we already have a religion. Right. So we can't replace our faith in Christ. We can't replace biblical faithfulness and the way of Jesus with our political identity. And I think in our culture right now, we're, with all of the anger around politics, with all the, the fighting, especially on social media uh, and in the, in the news on politics, it, it's real easy to see. Um, from our perspective as a church, I can say something confrontational about politics and I'll get a very strong reaction. If I say something that used to be contentious theologically, I, I usually hear crickets. Right. Um, so we see it practically playing out here. We see it in the culture. We see it on new, on the media. We see it everywhere. That politics has essentially become a religion for many in our country. Right. That primary identity in, in politics has basically imprinted itself on the church and the, and the way that in some circles that churches move to the left, what that looks like. The first thing we want to talk about is in the area of social justice. And if you attend our church, you know that we care about justice. We, we preach very regularly and, and issues of justice come up. We talk about politics, obviously. We talk about race. We do not think it's helpful at all to avoid these topics. We don't think it helps spread the gospel to avoid these topics. That's just not our position at all. So, so if conservatives err, it's on the side of let's avoid conversations of justice. On the left, there's a ton of focus on justice, but sometimes we lose... Um, we lose God in that. <laughs> we sort of yeah. completely lose right. the existence of a God, an authoritative God, the idea of lordship. We like the terminology of the kingdom without the king. We didn't come up with that terminology. Mark Sayers, uh, his work on this is, is really excellent. And then um, N.T. Wright as well. N.T. Wright talks about this quite a bit. And just this tension, conservatives tend to want the king without the kingdom, basically to know that we're going to heaven without any responsibility for building the kingdom here on earth. Then on the other side, on the left, it's building it here in the, in the sense of equality, social justice, all of those things, without an authoritative God who also is the Lord of our life. So I think it goes back to, in part, the, like, the old missionary conversation where um, missionaries would often debate. There's, this was a debate for decades within the church of like, when we go into a new environment, do we feed people and care for their physical needs? Or do we just preach the gospel? Uh, because we're mostly concerned about their eternal salvation. And I think the, the debate, from my understanding, has largely been resolved to now 
now where most missions organizations say, you know, we'll do both, but we're going to feed people when we get there. We're going to clothe them. We're going to provide for their physical needs and preach the gospel at the same time. Um, so it's kind of like a faulty, faulty perspective, I think. And this informs how we talk about the kingdom without the king. It's just it, the whole premise is flawed. Like, w- why can't we do both? And it implies a like short term missions trip mentality. Like we only have a week. Which one are we going to do? <laughs> you know, but when we're a church living in a culture, living, investing here over the course of years, both are in scripture. Both are true. We should, as a church, care for people's needs. We should love the poor and the vulnerable, the weak, the marginalized. It's all over scripture. And we talk about that. But we're not going to betray salvation um, as we're not just going to throw that out or go to the backdrop about Jesus being Lord of all creation, Jesus being our king, salvation found in no other name than in Christ. We, we can and should preach and declare, live both in community. So when we start this whole conversation of kingdom and king, we have to diagnose the problem properly first, that we go back to Genesis and we find the effects of sin in creation. We find it in our relationships uh, with one another, and we find it in our relationship with God. So all of those are negatively affected because of sin. So when we come to the gospel of Jesus, what we see is his lordship over all creation reestablished and him calling his people to rule creation. And we see Jesus restoring our relationships with one another through the church, through the Holy Spirit, whom he gives us. And he restores our relationship with God. So all of those aspects are involved in the good news of the kingdom and in this restoration that Christ brings, he solves all of the problems with sin. So when we start there, then we see that it is all encompassing. It isn't just, it isn't just social justice. We have to restore our relationship with God. It isn't just salvation. It's restored relationships to one another and to rule creation um, the way we were intended to in Genesis one. Yeah. So in, in more um, liberal church settings, you know, there's a big focus on communal sin, right? Here's what we have done as humanity. Um, here's the structural sin. Here's the, here's what we've done to our earth. Like a lot of we sin and a little bit of a lack of focus on individual sin, or that's the, the way it tends to air. Whereas in conservative circles, it's hyper individualistic, Right. Both exist. There is individual sin and there is communal sin, which you can do as a community over time. Um, I'm not the kind of person who just walks around saying, like, if you don't do this, you're complicit or I'm calling myself complicit or whatever. But there is communal sin, but there's also individual sin. Mm -hmm. And a lot of young Christians like to really focus on communal sins. And sometimes it is a little bit of a convenient distraction Mm -hmm. from individual sins and individual weaknesses, struggles, whatever you want to call them that are, are also, not just, but also mm-hmm. causing hurt in your life, causing issues in your life, causing pain in your life. There's a big tendency, even on an individual level, to do that same thing where it's trauma from my past, it's this, it's that. And my point is not to minimize that. There is a point to say at the end of the day, it might be someone else's fault, but they are not going to get me out of bed in the morning, mm-hmm. and they are not going to forgive that person for me, and they are not going to, like make my relationships healthy. I have to do some of that work myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a little bit of an error away from the individual responsibility when it comes to sin and walking out 
a faithful followership of Jesus. Yeah, I think it's it's just an emphasis thing. A lot of more conservative churches tend to put the emphasis on individuals, and a lot of more progressive churches, as you said, put the emphasis on society and collective and community. Both have elements of truth in them. Like like you said, just in the um, the day we're recording this, this morning's devotional I put out, um, we we're going through our prayer guide, and we are confessing communally. We're confessing about the sins of our community. And as I was writing this, I, I know... I know that a church like ours, which is much more <laughs> conservative, much more personal salvation, is going to take issue with that. Right. So I put all of Daniel 9 in there, right, where he confesses for the sins of all of his people. Right. So there is a biblical basis for both. And mm-hmm. I think a more progressive uh, liberal churches tend to overemphasize the social aspect of things at the cost of personal effects of Christ's salvation to an individual and not just a community. We need to hold these things in tension, and that's the problem in interpreting Scripture. Is when we, uh, when we see both, how do we hold these things in tension? We want clear, black and white, right. just one way, and we can't. So one one of the ways that has been helpful for me when I think about communal sin versus individual sin, I think one thing that is really harmful is when the fingers always pointed the other way, right? And we see a lot of that in in our in our world. It's like just groups blaming other groups for all the problems. And so it's possible to point the finger at myself and focus on my own heart, but not be self-centered and only focused on myself. So if somebody from our church community hurts somebody, I do bear a little bit of responsibility for that, I do think. Now, I don't think it would be right for that person, if they're the one who did it, for them to point at me and say, Pastor, this is your fault, would be crappy. But for me to say, what could I have done differently? And to go to God with that is a good thing to do. It's still a heart posture where I'm not pointing the finger at other people. So I think there's a healthy way to navigate that tension. Man, a lot of young people look around at the world and they just blame other people, man. My generation, for sure. It's like, look, look at the world we inherited, the environment, and the economy. Look, look what we inherited. And we just never get past that phase of blaming basically our parents. And for me, it's like, dude, okay, see a therapist if you need to, talk through that stuff. But at some point... Look at your own heart. Um, that doesn't mean that other stuff isn't happening. That doesn't mean what happened to you needs to be minimized. But we need to look at our own heart. Not just for individual sins, but for communal sins. But we still need to look inward and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Yep, G.K. Chesterton, when, when he was asked, what's wrong with the world today? Right. And his response, he wrote back. This is back when he had to write letters back and forth <laughs> to each other. He wrote back, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. So he's asked this big picture question of like, what's wrong with society? What's wrong with the world? And there are many problems that he could go to of, of issues with systems, with politics, with the church, with all, all of that stuff that he could have gone to, but uh, boils down to what we can control and we can control me. So he says, dear sir, I am. And it starts with our individual hearts. And individuals transform systems and still work for justice, of course, within our systems, but it starts with us. Yeah, and G.K. Chesterton actually went on to write a book called What's Wrong with the World, and he kind of extrapolates out on that on that same concept. He has more thoughts, right? But his point there is our initial heart posture when we look at what's wrong with the world, there's a ton that's wrong with the world, and we all know that. And there are people to blame besides ourselves. We know that too. But our initial heart posture should still be that we are on some level culpable for what's going on in the world because we are sinful. That is a good place to start.
for so many young people, we grew up thinking like we got to change the world. And it's been a hard pill to swallow for a lot of millennials as they come into adulthood to be like, if I want to change the world, I need to get my house in order right? and take personal responsibility. Instead, we tend to think so big. And that's symptomatic of trying to fix big systems before we look at ourselves right. and consider our own personal responsibility. And to be, to be extra clear, if we haven't been already... I don't think that's all you should do. Right. The goal of our life is, as Christians should not be to be self-sufficient, should not be to be personally responsible for ourselves. Christian, if you never need help with anything, then you're not doing enough. Like It's right. pretty simple. Right. If you never have those moments where you're like, dude, I just don't have it right now. I actually need God. Something's wrong. You're not helping enough people yourself. You're not stepping out in faith enough. But again, when it comes to liberal Christianity, I think it errs very far away from the personally responsible in a way that it's just the yep. ditch on the other side of the road. Exactly. So the other topic we want to talk about, which is related, is biblical authority. So we think that oftentimes what's categorized as more progressive or left-leaning churches tend to be slightly more dismissive, I think, is the, is the way of describing it, towards biblical authority, reinterpreting it, redefining it based on our current culture and our current, uh, our current sensibilities instead of viewing scripture as word from God as truth. We tend to read the Bible in some more progressive churches as a living document that in the sense of like, it's meant to be changed based on each culture that reads it and changes it and adapts it to, to modern sensibilities of that age without, uh, without holding themselves accountable and under the authority of scripture. The other end has often abused scriptural authority. And so it's kind of a retaliation mm-hmm. and a reaction against that of saying, well, like this, the way that they use scriptural authority was hurtful and harmful to this group of people or to me personally. And that can be true. And it has been true in many, many circumstances, especially towards um, the LGBTQ community, how mm-hmm how Christians have used biblical authority as the uh, phrase goes to like beat somebody over the head with the Bible. Right. And instead of loving them and caring for them while still holding to the truth of scripture. So the truth in love has been very difficult for the church to really hold to and to do well. It's a difficult concept, but that doesn't mean that we just retaliate and react and kind of throw a scriptural authority out with it. It's no, we still need to keep scriptural authority, keep what is true, and perhaps change the way that we uh, we approach it, the way that we handle it uh, within the culture. Because of our left-right identity in our country, we don't think about information for itself. We think about it in comparison to the quote-unquote other side. And that's exactly what we're trying to push back against. And so if you are on the left and you're saying like, oh, and, and conservatives, here's how they miss biblical authority, we 100% agree with that. I did like a rant on one of our episodes where I talked about how people in churches like ours don't actually care about the Bible that much. We do not think that conservatives get biblical authority right. That's not the point. The point is people on the left don't either. And that just happens to be what we're talking about today. Um, Biblical authority in those spaces, it's pretty simple. It goes something like, if we're going to treat the Bible as authoritative, it's going to harm people and we are not going to harm people. So we have to, we have to read the Bible differently where that goes is it starts with biblical authority, but really what it comes down to is authority. What, what's really ultimately being ejected is authority, both of, of the Bible and of God as, as Lord, right? right? Because ultimately what we submit to is the idea that if we're going to tell people that we think something is true and good for their life, that needs to be based on something besides just our gut. We are pretty loose-handed about 
a lot of passages how they can be read. John, when you teach, you will often give different interpretations versus saying what can be harmful in some cases, which is this is the way this is, no questions asked. But at the end of the day, we what we have to fall back on is there is a version of the Bible that properly read, properly translated, et cetera, is true. We are not comfortable simply saying like, look, we just need to kind of toss this out. It's like, no, we need to, we need to do our best to faithfully navigate what it says and then believe that that is true and teach that that is true. That has not always been done well, obviously. It's not done well today in, in a lot of evangelical spaces. We know that too. Bad biblical teaching has caused harm in a lot of cases. At the end of the day, though, we believe that the Bible is true. And we, I don't even know how to have a church without some agreed upon authority structure. We believe that the Bible is true and that it is authoritative. That doesn't mean that we think everything in it is literally true. Um, I think you, you do a great job of presenting different views on things that still maintain that we need to faithfully navigate this and take it seriously, Mm -hmm. have a very high view of scripture and not simply just like throw up our hands and say like, well, this though, and this, and we're going to harm people. So let's just, let's do our own thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There've been times where we've, where I've been in conversations with folks and kind of gone through a few of the different interpretations of a certain passage and say, you know, this one's kind of tough to swallow. Here's these different ideas. This is, um, it's a tough passage to interpret and, and they'll kind of, they'll kind of just say like, well, why don't we just, why don't we just take the one that is more culturally acceptable, like that interpretation? Why don't you just go with that route? And that's the wrong paradigm. That's the wrong framework. The framework is like, what do we think the Bible is saying? What is the best interpretation of this? We can't just say, well, I like this one better. So I'm going to take this interpretation, even if there are other scholars who would agree with you. It gets pretty dicey sometimes, but we have to hold scripture up as the authority to say what the best interpretation of this text and when interpreted properly, which is the caveat that has to be in there because that's where a lot of bad things happen is when we interpret it improperly. Um, We have to interpret scripture properly and then say, what do we think is the best? What is the Bible saying? And then hold ourselves under the authority of what we think the Bible says. That applies to things like ethics, uh, a lot of ethics that applies to church, that applies to a lot of stuff about how we live our life and our heart, even the theology of our sinfulness, right? The sinfulness of humanity. If we start there, instead of thinking of sin as just being out there, but also in here, like that changes the whole paradigm for how we read scripture. It changes the paradigm for how we live our lives. But that comes from the Bible that comes from scripture. That's not just our own ideas. It's based on what we read read in scripture. I'm going to talk about deconstruction for a second, because I think in evangelical spaces, biblical authority has always been huge in the sense that like you listen to what the Bible says, but biblical scholarship and good teaching of the Bible has not been. Mm -hmm. What that leads to is people who grew up in spaces like that tend to not have a super deep view of scripture or a desire for it. And that lends itself to deconstruction very, very well, because what happens is, gosh, there's so many, I've talked to, I don't know how many youth pastors who go into like this period of deconstruction where they say like, I'm ashamed at some of the things I taught because I didn't really know what I was talking about, mm-hmm. which is hundred percent true. There's tons of youth pastors who are prepping a message for their Wednesday night thing. But in a lot of cases, um, they don't really know the Bible very well. And then they come to this realization that they don't know the Bible very well. 
And instead of saying that realization sparked in me a deep desire to know the scripture better, instead of that, they find themselves drawn to other ex-youth pastors saying the same thing is like, how are we ever teaching this stuff when we didn't know? And it goes into more of like a gray question space of like, who could know? Who has any idea? Can you believe that we were talking about this like we knew when nobody knows? And it's like, hey, man, that's not that's not the only way that that can go. You can also decide to learn the Bible better. Mm-hmm. I was a youth pastor for a long time. I was, I think I knew, didn't know the Bible very well, but I was at least aware of that. Mm-hmm. And I, and I was careful to not get out in front of my skis with it too much. But one of the things that came out of that was like, I want to know. Mm-hmm. I, so it's, it's, que- it's questioning, but it's well-intentioned questioning. That's going to, that's going to, I believe lead you to a deeper relationship with God. A lot of people just do more of the, like the, dude, I don't know. Like, I'm not a, I'm not a Bible scholar. I can't believe I was ever doing that stuff. Does anyone know? Right. <laughs> and you get more into like the, you get you, what you get closer to is, is literally what the serpent says to Eve, which is like, did God say that man? Like, do we know, you know, it's just kind of like that permanent place of questioning. And so often when people deconstruct what they are deconstructing, I believe is not it's they're deconstructing bad church experiences bad theology, bad Bible teaching. Mm -hmm. They're deconstructing that stuff. The case that comes to mind as you were talking that I think represents, represents what you're saying really well was the case of Joshua Harris, who wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye as a a young adult. I don't even remember how old he was, but uh, it was a book that was super popular when we were kids about how to date and purity culture. It was one of those like defining books in within purity culture for men, um, especially. And, over the last, I think it was like four or five years ago, he started deconstructing his faith. And the deconstruction of his faith started with kind of hearing stories about how that book had harmed people. And it did, and it did do a lot of harm, and it was legitimate. And so that led to this whole process of deconstruction. And it seems to me, I mean, looking from afar, I don't know Joshua Harris, I don't know the entire process, um, but it seems to me that this those cases of harm that were done led him to kind of deconstruct everything and start over. But instead of like starting over based on like, what is the truth of scripture? Like what does the Bible actually say? And perhaps it was, perhaps even my book wasn't really based on what the Bible actually said. He, he threw out scripture with it. He threw out uh, the whole gospel. He threw out the message of Jesus uh, with it. And as he started over, he, he kind of had lumped the two of them together to the point that he couldn't separate his application of what he thought was what the Bible said from the truth. And perhaps that was just a distinction that needed to be made and then rebuild his life based on the truth of scripture and applying it um, more in accord with how scripture calls us to in a more loving, kind, gentle, all of that stuff and, and less dogmatic on an issue that wasn't necessarily didn't require that level of dogmatic approach. The other example is of Lecrae, who also went through a period of deconstruction where he, if you know Lecrae, he's a, he's a, a rap rapper who's very popular within evangelical circles, especially white evangelical circles. And he's black and he went through like an identity crisis of, you know, who, who am I? Am I, uh, I'm really popular in white evangelical circles, but not so much in black evangelical circles. Why is that? And so he went through a, a crisis of kind of re- identifying, re- reforming his identity, I would say. And he 
kind of got in touch more with black culture, but maintained his faith in Christ. He was able to distinguish the two. So he still held himself under the authority of scripture and built his theology and his life around the authority of scripture after deconstructing that one aspect of his life. Uh, And I think it starts there of like, Hey, we have to, um, we have to recognize these areas that are kind of ancillary, a part of who we are and build them around the truth of scripture. We're after the truth of scripture, not just like what makes me feel good or what, what was a wrong application or where did I go too far? It's, it's built on what scripture actually says. Yeah. And that, that, um, that Joshua Harris example, that purity culture example is a great, the, de- the deconstruction and sometimes the bad faith deconstruction that I was talking about. That's a great example. Um, so when you talk about purity culture or what, um, I think Caitlin Beatty coined it, the sexual prosperity gospel, which I love, I love how that captures what it is. Um, you can't find that in scripture, right? That is, that is a teaching that you can't find in scripture. It's unbiblical and it has been harmful and, there's plenty of shaming around sexuality in the church. And there's tons of super unhealthy stuff there. And there's just a ton, ton of honestly, just like really unhealthy stuff around sex in conservative churches in general. Right. Like just whether it's repressed, uh, there's all, I mean, it gets weird fast yeah, in, in some settings for sure. sure does. No denying that at all. Um, but the way that, but the way that so often goes when it comes to deconstruction is like people, People who, you know, maybe you go to college after you, you had a youth group experience like that or whatever. Um, you're like, gosh, that stuff was so messed up. The stuff that, that I was taught was so messed up. And I'm learning that now and I'm listening to a podcast now and I'm, I'm, I'm figuring out how messed up that stuff is. And in so many cases, our next step is not to rebuild my understanding of a biblical sexual ethic or on what's actually in there. Instead, our next step is like, well, who knows? Maybe I can sleep with people now and that's Mm -hmm. fine. Right? So there is this bad faith thing where we want to be able to do stuff and not feel bad for it. And if there's a pastor on Twitter who will give me the license to do that, then maybe I'll just take them up on that. Right? And so I do not want to have a shameful culture around sex. We certainly, like we've already said, a lot of what's been taught around sex has been bad and unbiblical and unhealthy, blah, blah, blah. Um, we still believe in a biblical sexual ethic. And, and the reason we do is because we believe the teaching in the Bible is relatively clear on it. And we believe the Bible is true. Deconstructing things that aren't even in the Bible as a way to give yourself permission to do the thing you want to do is bad faith deconstruction of, of what the Bible actually says. The one last thing we wanted to bring up was the relationship between the progressive or left-leaning churches and their ideas with the uh, global church and how these relationships seem to be pretty strained. Um, I think sexual ethics is a good example of it. There have been a number of conferences within larger denominations where they're debating, for example, um, homosexuality and and how to come down on those ethical an ethical position within their denomination. And what a lot of these denominations found was that the Western, more progressive churches, particularly in mainstream denominations, were, uh, or in mainline denominations, excuse me, were pushing for more progressive ideals on human sexuality, whereas churches in, for example, um, Central South America and in Africa were much more conservative and followed a more traditional uh, sexual ethic, I mean, what I would say was a biblical sexual ethic. And so there's a tension there. There's this tension between wanting to include foreign voices 
and uh, in, in their decision-making and between progressing in their view, right, towards a more liberal sexual ethic. And those two values seem to be in conflict. And what we've seen in a lot of mainline denominations is them kind of blaze ahead with their sexual ethic and leaving behind a lot of the uh, foreign uh, churches within their denomination. With that, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, As always, we'll be back with another episode soon.